for those who are new, my name is Susie. Um, I'm one of the pastors here in New Philly. Um, and I normally have a bigger stage than this. It feels like a pedestal of sorts. It's kind of awkward, but it makes me stay right here. Um, so the past two weeks, we've actually been uh, talking about the first commandment and the second commandment to start off the year before talking about different themes and topics and uh, directions that we want to take as a church. We thought that the first place where we thought we should start is where Jesus himself would have started. And that is the first and second commandment, what he condensed this entire book down to. It's two very basic, very simple things. One is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And second is love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've been talking about that for the last two weeks. Um, We've set ourselves on this course. No matter what this church builds up to be, we need to be faithful to what the Lord has said in his word. And so that is something that we're using as a plumb line, something that we're using to direct our course as a church as well. And we talked about the last couple weeks. It's not just, yeah, love the Lord. Sure. Love your neighbor. Just be nice. You know, it's a lot more than just that. It's, it means to agape God, your master with the whole of your heart, the whole of your soul, the whole of your mind, the whole of your strength, everything that you have. And then in the same way, extend the love that you have for yourself, the same way that you are naturally inclined to be self-interested and self-serving and self-protecting and self-defensive and all of that to project that and to actually extend that to your plays on to your neighbor. And so we talked about that last week and this week, we're going to talk a little bit more application wise for the first commandment. So if you thought that, you know, the first week that we talked about loving the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul and mind, it was a little too abstract, a little too out there. Like, you know, it's a great idea, but what does it actually look like? Um, We're going to talk about that a little bit today. And then next week, we're going to have Pastor JP. He's going to be going into the application of the second commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself. So today, we'll be talking about specifically cultivating intimacy with God. Cultivating intimacy with God. And it's not something that comes naturally to any of us. It doesn't matter how kind you are. It doesn't matter how pleasant you are as a person. Cultivating intimacy with God, it doesn't happen accidentally. It is something that we need to um, be deliberate and intentional about. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, Before we get started, how about we take a moment just to pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you, God, for your word. It is where the power lies, the power to transform our lives, to transform our desires, to diagnose our spiritual death in order that we might attain spiritual life through you. We pray, God, that it would be your word that cleanses us today, and it'd be through your word that we find eternal life. We're so grateful, God, that you are a God who speaks. You're not a God who remains silent and in the distance, but you're a God who speaks through your word, and you speak through your Holy Spirit. We're grateful for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is a plan for today. Don't get too excited, okay? I'm going to talk for a short time. Short time. I know all you guys are mustering like, yeah. Uh, we're going to sh- talk for a short time, and then we're going to actually have an extended time of worship afterwards. So we're going to kind of soak in a spiritual sauna of David Haas, buttery voice as he leads us through worship. No, it's not about David Haas. It's about the Lord, right? But um, we're going to have an extended time of worship. I just felt like, you know, we talk about a lot of different things, but then we kind of stop short of actually putting it to practice 
like that same day. We kind of are hoping that people will apply it in their own time at home. But I felt like maybe today, more than me speaking up here, it would be even more productive for us to take a time to actually worship and pray together afterwards. So, yeah. All right. So we're going to start off with just a few things to kind of set the stage for us. We're going to start with the foundation of intimacy. And we've been talking about how it's not a matter of like, trying and mustering, you know, really hard to love the Lord. And the more, you know, self-control you have, the more self-discipline you have, the better a chance you have at loving the Lord. That's not how it works. The first thing that is foundational to our pursuit of intimacy with God is first God initiates the relationship. We talked about how the definition of worship there's many different ways to define worship, but the most simple way to de- define worship is response to revelation. So it's God who reveals himself to us. Do you realize that God owed you nothing? Like he didn't actually have to speak to you at all. Like he didn't owe us his word at all. He didn't owe us his Holy Spirit at all. And yet he chose in his sovereignty to reveal himself to us. And that is already an incredible gift that we have as believers. And it is God himself who initiates the relationship. It means that there must be something that we are responding to, the knowledge of God. And loving God doesn't come in a vacuum. It doesn't just happen spontaneously. You can't will yourself into loving God. There is a self-revelation from a self-initiating God who owes us nothing. He owes us no explanation, no experience, no initiative, no intimacy, but he chooses to unveil himself to broken, undeserving, limited men and women. And he chooses to display the extent of his kindness and disposition, his uh, his perfect thoughts, his compassion, his sacrifice, his relentless pursuit for his bride. He chooses to reveal himself in all these different ways. Second, It is that we must respond to an invitation. This sounds very like common sense, but it actually in practice, it isn't because sometimes we can meditate on that first point. Okay. God, he initiated this and he gave us his word and he gave us his Holy spirit and he gave us his body and great. And you're kind of just waiting, like waiting for things to happen to you. But God makes it clear that although he initiates the relationship, it's an invitation to a response. It doesn't happen when you're just chilling and waiting for God to do everything for you. It's actually in God's grand mystery and sovereignty. He invites us to partner with him. So we have a part to play in it as you know, as much as we believe in God's sovereignty and God initiating, all of these things are true. And yet in God's mystery, he also invites us to respond and partake in the process as well. So we can't, Just because we believe in the first point here, we can't become fatalistic and then basically be like, well, if God, you know, wants to draw close, he'll draw close. If he wants to speak to me, he'll speak to me. And you kind of just go about your life kind of waiting for, for God to do all the work when in reality, he's actually inviting us to respond to his invitation. Now, third, I think all of us have experienced this to some extent. It is possible to know a lot about God. Like you can have memorized all these verses. You can have gone to church for 20 years. It doesn't matter, but you can actually go your entire life without actually knowing him, without actually firsthand experiencing him. We're going to talk about the the biblical word, know, what that means. So it's possible to know a lot about him without actually knowing him. And this is is something that needs to uh, be said 
especially if you are like me and you were born and raised in a Christian context, where just because you attended church every Sunday, people assume that you're a Christian. People assume that you have a personal relationship with the Lord. And that wasn't the case for me for many years. I attended church. I had friends. I could speak Christianese pretty well. I could sing all the songs. I, you know, I could even serve like on praise. I could do all these different things. I was a very good executor of what a Christian looks like. And yet I spent many years not really knowing the Lord for myself. And so we cannot assume that just because you look Christian and you sound Christian and you do Christian things, it doesn't actually mean that you know the Lord for yourself. And that is a very clear distinction we need to make. We cannot fall into the assumption that we are doing great with God just because sometime back, you know, five years ago, I decided, you know, to repeat a prayer or something, but then there's actually no fruit to bear witness to that testimony. And lastly, no one can do this for you. This is unfortunate. You cannot outsource this thing. Like no matter how hard I preach here today or how great the worship time is or how great and amazing this community is, no one can actually walk your spiritual walk for you. It is It doesn't matter how great of a discipler you have either. Like no one can do this for you. There's going to be a day when we have to bear account before the Lord of the kind of life that we lived. At that time, no pastor is going to speak up on behalf for you. In that time, no CG leader or no parent, no one can actually speak on your behalf. It is something that you yourself have to bear account before the Lord. And so it's very important for us to say this because sometimes when we are part of a church, we kind of get swept into a collectivist kind of mentality. Like our church is doing great. Our church is on fire. And so by default, I'm assuming I'm on fire as well. Like my spiritual walk with the Lord is great. Just because people around me seem to be on fire, like by osmosis, by contagion, by something, like it means that I'm doing great with the Lord as well. That is not the case. It is a personal walk that you yourself have to walk with the Lord. So those things are, you know, are the basic foundations. Um, This is obviously not exhaustive. But this is a great place to start when we talk about intimacy with the Lord. It is not like... You know, when the music is just right and the lights are dimmed and, you know, you feel a warm, fuzzy feeling, intimacy with the Lord is so much more, so much more than that. And so I wanted to kind of demystify intimacy with the Lord. One of my pet peeves, like forever, has been like when people say like, sure, you can do the intimacy with God thing. It's because you're a chick. I'm like, oh, heck no, you didn't. It is not a chick thing. Can I just say that (laughs) like out loud? If you look at the Bible, thank you. Thank you, sister. Yeah. When you look at the Bible, you see the most passionate, zealous people that are living for the kingdom. It is not just the chicks. It is apostles. It is disciples. It is people who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind, and they don't feel like it is like an intrusion on their manhood. So if we, please, if you ever say that here, I'm going to punch you. In the, okay, I won't punch you. Just the love of the Lord is upon me. But uh, yeah, so let's not like relegate oh, the intimacy stuff is for the women's ministry. Let's not, let's not do that. It is for every Christ-believing follower and discipler. Yes? Amen?
All right. We're going to read through a quick passage from Revelation 5. And this is a passage that we talked about before. This is where God in his sovereignty, he pulls back the veil just slightly for us to get a glimpse into what the throne room looks like. This is the one place where God in his full glory, like where he's unhindered, unveiled, and he lets us just take a peek at what he's like in his full glory. And so Revelation 4 and 5, they talk about that. And fortunately, the apostle John, John the Beloved, he wasn't you know, so overcome with everything that he forgot to write these things down. He wrote all these things down for us to also meditate on. And it says... Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, who's God the Father. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding seven bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is just a glimpse of what it looks like when people just glimpse, take a glimpse, a glance at the glory of God. This is just a foretaste of what awaits us as well. And now let me ask you this question. Is there any doubt in your mind that these four creatures, these 24 elders, these thousands upon thousands of angels, and these creatures in heaven and earth and under the earth and all of that, is there any doubt in your mind that they are completely and utterly in love, in awe, and undone by what they see before their eyes? Like their extravagant response of love and adoration is a response to an extravagant God. It is not them mustering up passion and affection for a God who's undeserving. They're simply opening their eyes, fixing their eyes on the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They just fix their eyes on him and worship just begins to flow out. It's like they can't be stopped even if you wanted to. Like they don't know what to do with themselves. Like they throw themselves at their feet. They throw their crowns before him. They, you know, they sing all these songs day and night, night and day. And that is a natural extravagant response to an extravagant God. So worship, it doesn't just come like, you know, you don't just, you know, whip it out of thin air. It is, it is a right response before a God who's glorious without measure and who's worthy of this kind of worship. This means that as people of God, we were made to long for greater revelation and greater closeness. 
This means we have been designed not just with the same way that we have physical hunger for physical food. Our spirit, it was designed to have a spiritual appetite. We are designed to want more of God. We are designed to respond to him. So as believers of God, where we live in partial revelation of who God is, we don't, we haven't experienced, I don't know if any of you have, but as far as I know, we haven't experienced that unveiled glory of God before our eyes. So as people who live with partial revelation and partial understanding and partial experience of God, we need to long for greater intimacy with him. That is the cry in our hearts. We were designed with a cry for spiritual intimacy. So if you feel like sometimes you're in this weird tension, this back and forth between like, I'm fully satisfied in God. And yet I want more. It's like a weird tension, right? You were built to be fully satisfied in God. And yet you're also built in with this spiritual appetite that wants more of God. And that is a good place to be. So this is how uh, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, uh, he talks about the revelation and knowing Jesus Christ. He's talking to the Ephesian church and, you know, he's heard about this Ephesian church that has just been planted and he's heard all these reports about how amazing it's going. And this is what he says about them. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better so that you may know him better. He is crying out on behalf of the Ephesian church, asking God, the father to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation for the sole purpose that they would know God better. This is a priority. It is not an afterthought. It is not something that you deal with once you've taken care of all the important things. This is a priority that you may know him better. And this word know is gnosis where we get knowledge, but it's not just an intellectual grasping. It's not just an intellectual understanding, but it, it, um, it talks about a more holistic knowledge. It includes firsthand experience, personal interaction, close up contact. And this is what Paul is on his knees crying out for. He's basically saying, Ephesians, you need to know him better. There's more of him that you need to know. You need to keep asking for more of him. You need to experience him in a greater measure. You need to become better acquainted with his words, his ways, his affections, his motivations, his judgments, his priorities, his wisdom, his beauty, his glory. It is unending how much there is for us to know of God. And then he goes on to say, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We're going to pause there just for a little bit. It is obviously not a literal thing, right? Your, your heart does not have eyes. I hope you guys know that your, your, your heart does not actually have eyes somewhere in there. So we're not, we don't take it literally, but there he's pointing at something very interesting here for someone, especially who's a scholar, someone who's like an apologist, someone who is a teacher of the law, someone who is an academic, he's pointing out something and he's saying that there are some things that you actually have to see with your heart, that your eye, I mean, your eye, your heart is able to see things, right? Otherwise you wouldn't say that our heart has eyes, right? So the eyes of our hearts, our ability to see with our heart, it actually has to be enlightened. So there's something that might even bypass your intellectual grasp, 
there's some things that you'll have to see with your heart as if your heart had eyes to see something that will bring you greater understanding. So he's saying, do not suppress this in your pursuit for intellectual understanding. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And it is not one or the other. So your heart has eyes. Can you tell your neighbor, my heart actually has eyes. You guys actually don't sound like you believe it still. So Paul is saying, Paul is saying, God, the father, you need to give your spirit of wisdom and revelation to these Ephesians so that they would know you better. And I'm also praying that their hearts, their, their eyes, their hearts will begin to see something that they're not currently seeing in order that one more time, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Again, gnosis, the hope to which he has called you, for you to personally experience the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, for you to become personally and closely acquainted with this incomparably great power for you who believe. It means that there is power available for you if your heart chooses to see. If you use your heart to see what is true, There's actually power that is available. There's hope to which he has called you. And God has a glorious inheritance in you. You you are the saints. You guys know that, right? Right? So God, the Father, and God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, they have a glorious inheritance in y'all, like in, in all of us, in the saints. He has a glorious inheritance for himself and his bride. And we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened for us to see that. So this means that gnosising, that's not a real word, right? Knowing God, gnosising God is much more than an intellectual grasping. It is much more than a vague, fuzzy feeling. It is actually an active, engaging endeavor. It requires your full participation and it results in your inevitable transformation and corresponding affection. That is what it means to know the Lord. And this same person, Paul, that was praying for the Ephesian church, he wasn't just expressing wishful thinking. Like, it would be great if, you know. He wasn't just expressing wishful thinking for them for something that he himself hadn't tasted. But actually, this is the same man who, laying, who after laying down his worldly resume and accreditation, after letting go of his worldly reputation and honor and esteem, he embraced willfully a life of love driven servitude to Jesus Christ. He took on persecution. He took on homelessness, poverty, being misunderstood, being rejected, being beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately being martyred. This is a person who's praying on your behalf that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This is Paul who's praying on behalf of the believers. And as he launches into this kind of lifestyle of being undone by the glory and the beauty of God, this is what he says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to what? Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. 
I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead, he's saying, I want to know all of Christ, not just the parts that benefit me, not just the parts that are easy to take in, not just the parts that are convenient and they align with my preconceived notions of who he is, not the parts that just benefit my interests. I want to know all of him, even if it means that I embrace death. I'll get to understand the power of his resurrection. Even I have to embrace, even if I have to embrace suffering, it means that I'll get to understand fellowship with the Lord in the midst of sufferings. Even if I have to lay down my life, I want to know Christ. All else I consider a loss. All else is rubbish. Everything else is a hindrance, is a distraction. So that begs the question, what are things that could keep us than from the knowledge of God. So we're just very briefly going to go through three different enemies of intimacy. And this is obviously, again, not an exhaustive list, but this is just to get us started because we know that pursuing God is not an easy journey. If it was, then all of us would do really amazing. But it is a hard journey. It's not all rainbows and unicorns and roses. It is a hard journey of staying passionate, of staying true, of being resilient, of staying undistracted in this journey. And so here's just three different things that I wanted to take note of today. The first enemy of intimacy would be spiritual arrogance. Spiritual arrogance. I think when you first read this, you're thinking of someone, but I'm talking about you, okay? (laughs) It's not your neighbor. It's not your friend. It is you. Like all of us fall into spiritual arrogance. And so in order for us to pursue and cultivate intimacy with the Lord, we need to war against spiritual arrogance. There's something in us, especially if we've been Christians for a few years, where we start to take things for granted. We start to believe like, yeah, yeah, I know all that. Yeah, I memorized those verses. Yeah, I've read that part in the Bible. Yeah, I've heard that song. And there's a part in us that begins to get hardened a bit, right? Where we begin to harden our hearts, we lose our tenderness and that heart posture of awe and childlike wonder. And deep down inside, when we look at somebody who is experiencing that kind of like first love, like they are undone by the beauty and the grace of God, we look at them with a little bit of growing cynicism, like, oh, that's really cute. Yeah, this is really cute. Oh, I'm so glad that the Lord's doing that for you. But like, we'll talk in a couple of years, right? There's like a little bit of cynicism that begins to grow in us where we think like it's only for beginner Christians. Once they get past that and become mature, then they're like, they're not going to be as awestruck and they're not going to be as fascinated. But this actually happens, especially in Western Christianity. And this is a reason for it is because we deify and we idolize rationalism. This is why it is so hard for the Western church to actually believe in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why the parts that don't make sense to us, our initial reaction is to like discard it until we understand it, meaning that we are idolizing our understanding before the truth of the word. It means we hold hostage this word and we ask for this word to submit to our understanding instead of the other way around where we submit to the truth. And so this is... This is huge, especially in Western Christianity, where we idolize rationalism. 
But let me ask you, is that biblical? Is that biblical? Like this kind of like, uh, it was great with Jesus the first few years, and then eh, things are going okay. Eh, you know, I, I, I have no complaints. Is that biblical? If you look at Paul, if you look at John the Beloved, if you look at Peter, you look, you look at all these people that have gone before us, and they love the same God that you and I love. It's not a different person that they're loving. It's the same God, just as glorious, just as beautiful, just as fascinating, just as mysterious. It's the same God. And yet, in our spiritual arrogance, we're like, oh, yeah, I think I've, I, have all I, need to, I, I have all I need to know about him. And so, in our hearts, we need to actively battle and war against spiritual arrogance. Because it is very subtle, but it is there. It creeps up on you before you know it. You look at someone like David who pursued the Lord. I don't know for how many hundreds or even thousands of hours he was in the temple, just looking upon the glory of the Lord that was sitting on the mercy seat. Like this is like intense stuff, right? Even for someone like him who spent that kind of intense, like out, like intense time looking at the beauty of God. This is what he says. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And, oh, Never mind. We war against spiritual arrogance. And this is what uh, uh, David says. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. For us, we're like, it's pretty searchable. You, you know, like, you know, just a few hours here, like some QTs here. And it's pretty searchable. It's, I think I've reached the end of my knowledge and understanding of God. You know, but even someone who was devoted, his life was devoted to seeking out the knowledge of God. Even someone like him. It wasn't like the more he pursued him, the more he knew about him. It was like the more he pursued him, the more he realized that he didn't know about him, right? For someone like him, he says his greatness is unsearchable. In Psalm 139, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful me, wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. It is, it's like, it's right outside of your grasp. Like you feel like you're going to hold on to it. And yet it seems to escape you every time. So, even someone like Job, who is a righteous man before God, who walked with him for a lifetime, and he also walked with him not just through a season of blessing, but also through a season of loss and tragedy and agony. This is what Job says in chapter 11. He says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? This is someone who has lived an entire lifetime following the Lord, searching his scriptures, Someone who has been devoted to seeking out God in the midst, not just of blessings, but also in the midst of his lack of understanding. Why is this happening to me? In the midst of that, he says, I cannot understand. Like there is, there are no limits to this God. I thought I understood him. And yet now I realize that I don't know him as well as I did, uh, as, as well as I thought I did. And you see Paul, the great theologian, apologist, he is like, if you were to put like John Piper and Tim Keller and Billy Graham and you were to condense them into one person, he was that person back then, right? He's like the guy, like the expert in the law. Even someone like him in Romans 11, he says, oh, the depth of riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For someone who had studied the law for his entire life as well, this means that for us, for us, who are just starting on our journey, there's so much more for us to know, to gnosis, to experience firsthand, for us to personally discover and learn and dwell on. There's so much more for us. I think in, 
in theory, it makes sense. In practice, it is very hard. I tell you, this is something that I face almost every week. One thing that I do throughout the week, um, if you guys don't know yet, I'm part of the prayer tab. So we devote two hours a week to just seek the face of God, right? And so imagine this, right? You show up to a prayer watch and you're like, for two hours, you're like undone by the beauty of God. Like you've cried every tear you have to cry. You sung every song that's on your heart. Like you've meditated on scripture. You've journaled everything in your life. And then after those two hours, you're like, that was great. I think that was it. I think I got it. I think I arrived somewhere. And then you show up the next week and you're very tempted to think like, I don't know if he can outdo himself from what he did last week. I don't know if there's anything new for me to learn. I don't know if these two hours will teach me something that I didn't know. I didn't learn those last two hours. And you'd be surprised, but that is so easy to fall into. Because you think like, all right, I have a really great time with the Lord. And I think I've arrived. I think I'm done. But then you show up the next week and you're like, all right, all right. I'm going to give you the benefit of, of doubt, God. You say you're unsearchable. So it means there's probably more that I don't know. And then you go through another two hours and God just reveals himself to you in a completely new way. And at the end of two, those two hours, you're like, okay, now, now I can say I've arrived. Like now I know everything there is to know, all the mysteries and, uh, you know, and you're so tempted to fall into that kind of spiritual arrogance because you feel like there's like a limited knowledge for us to attain from the word, from God, and that there's going to be a point where he is no longer fascinating. He is no longer unpredictable. He is no longer God, basically. That is, our, that is the way that we see God in such a limited, such a human kind of way. When God says he's completely other. He's holy, holy, holy. His greatness is unsearchable. You could spend every waking moment in your life for the rest of your life seeking him, going into scripture, memorizing songs, whatever you want. And yet at the end of it, you'll still realize that there's still more to know about God. That is a testimony of saints that have gone before us. And that is the testimony that we today live in as well. So this is a quote from a very wise person. And it says, our boredom and apathy in our spiritual journey So our boredom and apathy in our spiritual journey is indicative of not just something we are doing wrong, but someone we are not seeing rightly. That means if you are bored, if you're apathetic, then it means it's not just that you're doing something wrong. You're actually not seeing God rightly. Like you're not seeing him completely. You're seeing a very, I don't know, washed, watered down, like very limited view of God. So it means that you're, it's just someone you're not seeing rightly. If you see, if you see that your response isn't right, it means that your revelation is probably not right either. So often, this is what I tell people who come to me. They say, like, look, I'm going through a really dry season. Like, look, I'm trying the best I can, but I just can't get myself to, like, get passionate. And I know that I was in a very different place last year, but now I just don't know. I, I don't know how to jumpstart it again. Like there are seasons where, where you go through dryness. Yes. But the, the strongest, I guess, most reliable remedy to that is just gaze on God. Like there's no, I wish there was a spiritual formula, like recite this three times and then you hop on one foot and then, you know, like something really, you know, ordinary that I could give to you as a recipe, but there's no way around it. Like you cannot 
burn for something you don't understand. You can't burn for something you don't see. And so usually the problem isn't in what you're doing. is actually you're not seeing God rightly. And the more you see him, the more rightly you're able to respond to him. So that is the first, um, I would say, enemy against intimacy with God, spiritual arrogance. Now, the second thing would be um, the work of the flesh and of the enemy. The work of the flesh and the enemy. So we cannot be naive enough to think that in our pursuit of God, the enemy is going to leave us alone, right? Our flesh with all its sin will say, okay, you pursue the Lord. Great. I'm rooting for you. That's not what the flesh does. I don't know if your flesh does that, but my flesh sure, sure doesn't do that. My flesh resists the knowledge of God. Like, ah, oh, you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you can spend your time a different way? Are you sure? Like, you have to go that far? Like, are you sure when, like, you know, your, your Christian friend is, isn't going that far? Like, do you really need to go, like, Oba and, like, you know, do this whole thing? Like, do you really need to go like above and beyond, my flesh will always say that to me. There's not a day where I wake up and my flesh is like, let's pursue the Lord with all of our heart. No, like you have to battle your flesh. And that is because we are mortals in a mortal body, right? And there's a parable in Matthew 13 that talks about different kinds of soil. So the seed is good. The seed is the same. It's like if you're doing an experiment, the seed is a control, right? So it is the same in all these different cases. The seed is good. But depending on what kind of soil it lands on, the result will be very different. And so this parable starts out this way. It says, when anyone hears a word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, it is the one who hears a word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit. Uh, he indeed bears fruit in, and yields. That makes no sense. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So this parable is talking about three different kinds of soil. The same seed falls on these three different kinds of soil. The first is on a path where you see uh, the enemy comes to take it away. The second is rocky soil where tribulation comes and takes it away. It wasn't deeply rooted. And the third is a seed that was planted around thorns where the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches take it away. So this is an active work of the enemy and of the world and of distractions and of the flesh and all these things. They are against this fruit bearing, I mean, the seed bearing fruit. They're actively against it. And we, in a very naive way, we're surprised, right? We're like, what? There's going to be resistance. What? It's not going to be a full open door where I get to pursue the Lord just without any distractions. No, there's obviously going to be distractions and the enemy is going to be actively working against this bearing fruit in your life. So the seed on good soil is a seed that takes root. It grows and it bears fruit. Another quote from also a very smart person is our covetousness, covetousness. It means like you're, Lusting after something that you don't possess, right? Our covetousness is a sign that we don't truly understand what we possess as children of God. Like if we ever came to the realization of what 
is ours through the blood of Jesus Christ. If that ever hit home for us, and if we were able to remain in that place and in that truth, grounded there, rooted there, covetousness would never be a problem. Like, the world has nothing to offer that is better than God. I think in our minds, yes, we can agree to that, but in practice, that's not how we think, right? We're like, God is like good, but kind of boring, but it's, it's, like, it's like medicine. It's like necessary good, but you don't really enjoy it, right? It's like you, you just have to do it. It's like duty, but then the world is like the fun stuff. So you feel like all like defensive when God is asking you to lay down things of the world. You feel like, ah, that means that I need to submit to a life that is boring, a life that is unfruitful, like unfulfilling. I'm going to be bored for the rest of my life. There's something in us that believes that God wants something good, but boring, like (laughs) a, a, a far second from what the world can offer to us. But if that's the way that we think, and we're coveting something outside of God, something outside of the goodness, the perfection, the beauty of God, it means that we actually don't understand what we possess in God. Again, we're not seeing him rightly, and in this case, we're not seeing ourselves rightly either. And finally, um, the, third, the third enemy of uh, intimacy with God is not pray, uh, but is quenching the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? So in response to that, we need to pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, lest we think we can do this in our own strength. Do you guys remember the the passage we were just talking about where we need the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation? We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. This is not our own fleshly doing. This is not our good works. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, Because through our own willpower and just how smart and how upright and how disciplined we are, we cannot attain closeness with God. The word reminds us that it is the Holy Spirit at work in us that enables us to seek him, to know him, and to engage with him. This is something that comes up in John 15. It says, but when the helper comes, this is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will tell you about me. He is going to reveal me to you. That is what it's saying. The Holy Spirit, that is his job description or part of his job description. In Acts 1.8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You cannot be a witness of God if you don't know God. And you cannot know God without the Holy Spirit at work in you. So quenching the work of the Holy Spirit will automatically quench your ability to grow in intimacy with God. Because a life that is built on walking with the Spirit is a life of having history with God. It is a life that is built on the foundation of his word, his leadership, his truth, his guidance, and his character. Does that make sense? I don't want, I I need to make sure this is very clear because I don't want anybody walking out of here today later on thinking like, all right, so I just need to, I need to just try praying more. I need to try reading more Bible Sure, those things are going to help, but it's not going to be the acts of your flesh. It's not going to be your 
good, righteous works that are going to get you there. It has to be there. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. You need to, the first thing that you need to do in pursuit of God is ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Like, Holy Spirit, I need to see. Holy Spirit, I need to draw closer to God. You need to help me. I don't think anybody here is so spiritual and so upright and so disciplined that they can do this without the work of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot walk out of here thinking, I'm just going to try harder, and my intimacy with the Lord is going to skyrocket, and it's going to be awesome. That's not how it works. It needs to be the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, lastly, I want to talk about one more thing, and that is the power of intimacy, the power of intimacy, because you can be sitting there thinking like, so what's, what's the big deal, right? Like, great, I know that I need to cultivate intimacy with the Lord, but is that really that important? Let me tell you that there is a strength and a tenacity and a jealousy and a perseverance that comes from no other source than love, because you can move someone to do something by forcing them. You can make things happen by remaining consistent or changing exterior things or building programs or trying to do things. You can do all these things just by sheer self-discipline and external infrastructures and events or whatever. And you can get people to do what you want them to out of compulsion or uh, obligation or guilt. But only love, only love can move a person to give their all. You're never going to get wholehearted abandon for the Lord if you're not talking about love. Obligation is just not going to get you there. Self-discipline is not going to get you there. Regular QTs are great, but they're also not going to get you there by default. It has to be love. Only love can move a person to give their all beyond their requirements, beyond the bare minimum, beyond the obligation. And those questions that we often ask, how, how much can I get away with without actually sinning? Like, how far do I have to be righteous, you know? Like, can I get away with this? And can I keep this? And do I have to let go of this? That's our bare minimum mentality. That's like, I want to honor the Lord, but I don't know if I really want to love him and follow him. You know, I just want to not fall into really bad sin. And that's our just human nature of asking, what can we, how much do we need to do? How much is required of me? And that's, that's the bare minimum that I'm going to accomplish. But if we, that's, that's a heart that isn't overcome with love. But a, a person who is in love, you've seen it over and over again, right? People who are in love, they become stupid in a good way, right? Like they go above and beyond what is necessary. They will go above and beyond what is required. They will do what makes no sense to anybody else. And that is the power of love. Hopefully it's rightly directed, right? But that is the power of love. Only love can get you to that place. It is not anything else but love. Only love can carry you through hardships and unexpected shakings where you will have no gain. And you have to bear the cost. And you have to sacrifice your comfort. And you do what doesn't make sense to the world. Only love will carry you through that. Only love will carry you through those, you know, those doubts that are inside, you know, like saying, like, what's in it for you? What are you gaining from this? You know, like there's there's something in you that's like, am I gaining anything? What's in it for me? You know, only love will get you past those doubts. In Matthew 24, there's a passage where the disciples ask Jesus about the end times and follow me. This is this is related to love, right? Uh, the disciples asked Jesus about the end times. And this is like a very grim, grim, 
there's no such word, grim picture of what the end times looks like, right? We see deception from within the church. We see persecution from outside the church. We see man-made worldwide global disasters caused by war and such. And then there's also natural disasters that are not caused by man, that are outside of the control of mankind. In the midst of all this, this is what Jesus says that the end times will be like. He says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains." Then you'll be handed over, as if that wasn't enough, right? Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase increase of wickedness, this is what happens. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end, will be saved. Isn't it interesting that Jesus equates those who will not make it to the end as those whose love has grown cold? Isn't it interesting? He makes that parallel. So by extension, he's saying that those who stand firm to the end, who are going through all these things that are shaking all around them, those who stand firm to the end are those whose love still remains a burning, growing desire for him. And this this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus is talking about a generation of people who will be sifted. Sifted by persecution. Sifted by natural disasters. Sifted by wars and famine. There's going to be a great sifting in that time. And the people who remain standing firm in the faith until the end is not the people just who are disciplined, just who are well-meaning, well-intentioned, that had a great discipler, that went to an amazing church. It's not the people who make it to the end. It's the people whose love has not grown cold. So we're not talking about this would be a nice extra to have in my life and in my walk to the Lord. It will spice up my Christian life. No, it is a do or die. It is a life or death issue. Having your heart burning for the Lord, guarding your intimacy with the Lord, it is a life or death issue. I'm going to close with one more passage, and I'll invite um, Pastor David actually to come up. I'm going to close with one more passage that I have been kind of sneakily weaving into the last, you know, two and now three sermons, and it's from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, We went through the first part, you know, in the first uh, Sunday of 2019. The second part was last week. Now we'll talk about the third part. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. It means that there's a day coming when all things that are temporary, they'll fade away in the light of the eternal. And it goes on to say, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the the imperfect disappears. It means that the partial way in which we see and understand and grasp things will give way to the full revelation of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glory 
and perfection. And then he goes on to say, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. It means that in that day, we'll put behind our partial understanding, our partial grasping, and even the height of our knowledge of God, like the most spiritually intense experience you've ever had in your life until now, even that will be comparable to the understanding of just a child. Something where they can barely understand the complexities of a God who is unsearchable. And then he ends by saying, now we see, but in a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So there's something so great in God's eyes, so eternal in its nature, so permanent that it will follow us into the eternity to come. And that is love. We don't get to take anything else into the eternity to come. Now, our journey on this side of eternity, it matters. Our longings and desires and what we choose to cultivate and invest in, it matters. It will carry us through this life with all the inconveniences and all the tragedies and the unforeseen circumstances, when we're brought to that place over and over and over and over again, where life and the world and your job and your spouse and your roommate and your children, whatever, all these different things will bring you back to that place over and over again. Well, you'll have to decide what you'll pursue, what you'll choose to worship, what you'll choose to treasure and love in your heart. And if at the end of this life, if we can finish this race more in love with Christ than we ever were, like more, having seen more, having tasted more, having known and, and experienced more, more passionate than ever before, then we'll have spent this momentary life very well. That is my prayer just for myself. I would hate to see my spiritual walk declining the longer I walk with the Lord. Like that is like a nightmare to me. Like if I fizzle out at the age of 60, if I fizzle out at the age of 70 and my glory days were behind me, like my intimacy days of the Lord were behind me, that would be such a tragedy. Like my aspiration, my ambition is to live a life where with every year I get to love him more. I get to see him more. I get to taste him more. I want to become one of those crazy 80-year-olds that you can't get to shut up, like in, in your, you know, in worship services. Like, they're so in love with Jesus, they don't care, right? I, that's my aspiration. I want to become one of those crazy old women who love Jesus with all their hearts, all their soul, all their mind. They don't care who's watching. They don't care who's listening. But they're just so in love with Christ. And it's something that grows on with every year. That is what I would love to see for myself. Now, isn't that something you want for yourself as well? Like, can you imagine, can you dream with me for a second? Like a church that with every year, doesn't matter if it was a good year or a bad year. Like we love the Lord more passionately, more ardently than we did last year. That'd be such an amazing testimony. And that is, that has been my, my dream. And that has been my hope as we are starting this new year, 2019, where I don't need a guarantee that it's going to be a good year. 
Like, I don't need a guarantee that, hey, things are going to work out. You're going to find a place. You're going to have a growing congregation. You're fine. Like, I don't need those kind of guarantees. Like, all I need to know is, like, are we going to pursue the Lord together? If we are, then, man, we're in a good place. Like, it doesn't matter. Anything else is a detail. Everything else, it'll happen or it won't happen. I hope it happens, but if it doesn't, not all is lost. Like, man, if we can become a company of people who love the Lord so passionately that it doesn't make sense to the world, that even people who are feeling dry inside, they'll come into contact with this family, with this community, and be like, there's something about them. Like, their life outside of church is not very different from mine, and yet they have a joy. They have this peace. They they seem to not care about these things that are so important to me. There's something different about them. And that is the kind of church that I would love to see being built here. Like people who are desperately, passionately, hopelessly in love with God.